Anyway, it's good to be here with you guys, and we're very thankful to be back in your midst, and what a, what a neat opportunity. It seems like every time I'm here, you guys are getting ready to move somewhere, though. So, I don't know, it's a tabernacle, do you just pack it up, and that's sweet, because you know what this is? This is, this is the church, not this, you know, not the, there's something up here that's about to shoot me, I think, and so I'm, I'm going to serpentine during this a little bit, but the church is God's people, and it's just plain exciting to to see you guys again and to, to see God continue to work in your midst. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Because I want to take you this week and next to a passage that, that I think is uh, incredibly important to our worldview. You know, one of the, the most tragic passages in all of Scripture to me is a small comment that Paul makes at the end of his, the last epistle he ever wrote. Uh, as Paul's life is drawing to a close as he writes to Timothy some, some final instructions. And as he closes that letter, he's in prison, he's under Nero, which, as you know, is not an easy guy to be in prison under. He's probably about as unfriendly to the Christian faith as any leader that has ever had. Uh, but as he's writing, as he's closing this letter, he, he includes some very personal uh, insights and comments and some requests, you know, bring me a cloak, bring me my books, typical pastor there, right? Uh, he writes to, to Timothy, uh, and the sad comment is this, is that he says he's been abandoned by everybody but Dr. Luke. And, and one of the ones that he mentions, that I think is the tragedy of that passage, is, is a guy by the name of Demas. Demas was a, a co-worker with Paul. Demas uh, was a guy who was alongside Paul all through uh, much of his ministry. He, when Paul closes the book of Colossians, for example, he, he sends greetings from himself, from Luke and from Demas, who is with him. At the end of his little book of Philemon, written about the same time as Colossians, uh, Paul refers to his companion Demas as one of his fellow workers. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul makes this very, very tragic, very, very sad statement where he says, make every, he writes to Timothy, he says, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas was a guy who worked alongside Paul, but had never really counted the cost, and when push came to shove, he abandoned the work of the gospel, and he abandoned, he abandoned Paul as well. He exchanged, in the words of Romans 1, he exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image for, for the things around us. He, he got sidetracked. He, he got distracted. He settled for less. Just as Paul feared in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, when he wrote, I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Isn't that a beautiful phrase, though? Simplicity and, and purity of devotion to Christ. The word that's translated uh, simplicity there in that verse is haplotes. It, it, it literally means singleness. It, it, it's the key, I believe, to the vibrant, uh, successful Christian life. And if you find any great man or woman of God throughout history, you'll find a person who has this attribute, who, who has this singleness of purpose and devotion. Somebody who said, hey, you know what? Christ is all that matters. He's all I care about, and I will devote myself to him in whatever I do 100%. J.C. Ryle said, singleness of purpose is one great secret 
of spiritual prosperity. You know, we live in a day and age where a lot of people like to call themselves Christians, but, I mean, you hardly get out of bed for church on a Sunday morning or get together for midweek with other believers. Man, that's for fanatics, right? Devotions and prayers are the things that fall by the wayside in the busyness of our schedule. Our time with God is, this, is almost like something we do at the end rather than the first thing, the main thing. And the type of Christianity that many po- possess and profess today is no more than an accessory to their wardrobe that they put on on Sunday mornings, and then when they get home, they, they take it off and crump, it lays crumpled in a hidden closet somewhere. This is not the Christianity that the Bible describes, right? To be a follower of Christ, biblically speaking, is to be a person who is passionately on fire for the things of God and single-minded in their devotion to Jesus Christ. And this single-mindedness affects all aspects of their life. What they do, what they read, how they spend their time, what they do with their money, who their friends are, how they act as employees, how they act as employers, how they speak, etc., etc. And that's the issue that we face in our passage today. The issue of single-mindedness. Now, this passage is instruction, as everything in the Word of God, right? Is, is instruction from God himself. And this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? This is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, okay? I mean, and he did it really short. You know, I'm pushing the clock. I know there's somebody coming in here in a little bit. And so, you know, this is, he did it really quick, three chapters, man. You don't have that luxury. But it's, it's beautiful truth that's packaged in, in, in such precision that as we study it, while it could be read in a matter of minutes, it would take a lifetime to unfold its great truths. A man or woman or child who, who follows these instructions here will not end up walking the path of Demas and will never make the fatal error of settling for less. And by less, I mean what the world has to offer as a priority of life. Throughout my adult life, there have always been people who want to tell me how to invest what little money I have for God, that God's entrusted me with. Uh, in the business world, it seems like everybody's consumed with the best way to invest everything so they could retire, number one, and retire early, number two, and retire at a certain level of income, number three. Today, what we're going to look at is a very, very radical but familiar passage, and I want to notice here really the secret of successful investing, Okay. Now, the investing I'm talking about is not merely money. I'm talking about, uh, an inv- you know, God doesn't need your money. You understand this, right? He's got a cow- the cattle on a thousand hills. He wants much more than that. What God wants is he wants you and I, right? He wants us, all of us, not just parts, not just pieces, not just the change in our pockets. He wants us. Now, if he has you, he has your money as well. He has your time also and your desires. Now, follow along as I read our passage, Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 24. We're going to look at that this week and next week. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But... If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. As human beings, we are naturally preoccupied with stuff, right? Uh, This was the way of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who, according to Luke 16, 14, were lovers of money. They, They believed, you see, that and as many believe even today, that a mark of of spiritual prosperity and superiority is material prosperity. And that's a perversion of a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about, then you will make your way successful, Joshua 1, or Deuteronomy 28 with the blessings and the cursings. The thing they miss, of course, is that Jesus was exceedingly poor during his lifetime, right? I mean, the Son of Man didn't even have a place to lay his head. You understand this, right? wealth is not spiritual or unspiritual you understand that there were wealthy followers of christ right abraham job joseph of arimathea and there were plenty of poor followers of christ as well pick an apostle there there's nothing wrong with money but to be consumed by it or with it is sin in fact, the Bible teaches that wealth is not even to be our focus. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from consideration of it. And that's kind of one of the things that kills me about the health and wealthers, right? Is because it's kind of like the focus of everything. You pull a passage out and it's like, we got to start talking about how we can get more money. Uh-uh. You know, I used to, for entertainment, watch TV evangelists on like TVN or something like that, you know? And it was, it was, at first I started off just kind of laughing because it was so silly. But then you realize how sad it really is because so many people are sitting at home and they're hung, they're, they're hurting and they're struggling and, and, and then they get this false stuff spewed out at them. It's a very different thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, what the gospel of Jesus Christ does is it it, it takes you from from a lost wretch who is without and makes you infinitely a child of the king, right, with an inheritance. And that is not uh, to say that it is a monetary transaction. It is something much, why set our sights so low? It's so much bigger than that, right? It is a fulfillment that goes down to the core of your being. Every aspect of your life is transformed. As I watch those guys on TV, I often wonder, how in the world do people buy into this? Because they're just twisting stuff. And then I realize, you know, people don't know the Bible. They don't really know what it says. So when you take something and twist its meaning, and then add to that our own fleshly, greedy, lustful desires, it all of a sudden becomes something that people latch onto very, very quickly. It breaks my heart to watch people in these congregations crying and flailing and hoping in the wrong message. Let me tell you something. If you follow Christ, God will make you rich. It may not be financially, right? But God will make you rich. Our passage makes that clear today. See, the issue at hand is what, what's your spark plug, right? What, what fires your engine? What are you about? What excites you? Do you live for Christ? Do you live for his purposes, for his goals? Or do you just live day to day, week by week, month to month, waiting for the next paycheck, the next trip, retirement, whatever? You see, people waste their lives, right? Waiting for that thing that's still yet to come and missing out on the life that is offered through Christ. Jesus says, 
We are to be single-mindedly sold out and consumed with the things of God. He says first, and this is on your outline, that we are to have one treasure. Okay, one treasure. You see that in verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves, rather, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Greek word there for lay up is uh, thesarizo, okay? The word for treasures there is thesaros, right? You, you, you know the book that has all the words in it, a thesaurus? That's where we get that word. It, it, it's a treasury of words. And the idea here of the, these words that are related are, is the idea of just kind of taking and stacking up coins, you know? Oh, man, I've just I'm got it in neat little piles, and I'm kind of paying attention to it. Oh, isn't that great? You know, Scrooge McDuck in it, you know what I mean? And the Greek syntax here is interesting as well. Uh, when the negative was used with the verb type and tense that we have in the sentence, it carries the, a- the idea of an action that is in process that needs to be stopped. It's happening now and it needs to be to- stopped. So literally what it says here is stop treasuring up treasures for yourselves on earth. Stop it. He says, stop it. And he points then to the futility of it all. Look, verse 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, you got to remember in the time that Jesus was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, people's treasures, not really all that different from today, came basically in three forms. Okay? You had clothing, food, and then the precious gems and metals. Okay? So three categories. And he addresses them all here. First, he talks about clothing. In that day, it was considered a big indicator of your wealth, right? I mean, a purple robe, man. If you had a purple robe, you were it. It was the Armani of the day, or I guess whatever it is nowadays, right? I mean, this is why when you're in uh, Joshua 7, you find Achan get really pulled in by this cloak. You remember this? This jacket that he just, he, he wasn't supposed to take any spoils, and he saw this beautiful jacket. And he says, man, I got to have that. And he took it, and he dug a little hole in his tent, and he buried it in there and hid it away. I was like, I got my, oh, I got it. It's my treasure, right? I mean, we can't, I guess we can't really, I can't really understand that one myself personally. That's not a big deal. But, but the, the reality is, in that day, your, your clothing, not unlike today, I suppose, it was a status symbol, all right? And it, it showed that you were wealthy, now, what Jesus reminds his hearers here is that all these garments, no matter how fine and how precious and all that kind of stuff, will rot, will, will succumb to the moth, no matter how great they are. They're going to they're be done away with. The second category was food, okay? The, you see the word rust there in the NAS? If that's what I'm reading from. Rust is a word, literally what the word is behind that is eating, Okay? it's used here to talk about the, the really the spoiling action of varmints upon food storage. The second category of things. What Jesus is doing here is he's reminding his ears that no matter how much food you stockpile, how, how vast your food supplies were, those supplies are going to ultimately rot away and get eaten by rats, mice, worms, other vermin, or even yourself and wasted, Right? Third category, clothing, food, and gems and precious metals. In Jesus' day, there weren't banks and there weren't valuables stored uh, in in a third party's facility, typically. What a person would do is they would take their valuables and they would uh, bury them in their own house to protect them. 
And the problem is that thieves would break in, and the word literally there is dig through because their houses were made out of basically a soft clay. They, they would just, the thief wouldn't just like, you know, jimmy a window or a door with his credit card, didn't have them, right? He would just dig through the wall, and boom, he's inside, and then dig up whatever your precious thing was and take it out. And he says, hey, Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? Thieves break in and steal even that stuff. You know, our situation over 2,000 years later is not much better, right? The things that we store up and consider valuable still rot, rust, and decay and get stolen. No matter how much insurance you got, right? No matter how many FDIC guarantees there is on your money. No matter how many preservatives you put in your food, even a Twinkie's going to rot eventually, right? In the end, it all rots. Now, remember here that Jesus is not condemning wealth, right? Uh, scripture nowhere uh, condemns having personal property. You understand that, right? In fact, if you look at the parable of ant, ant, the ant in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, it's actually encouraged to, to grow out and gather certain things, right? We're instructed in 1 Timothy 5, 8 to provide for our own. That means you have something to use to provide for your own. Of course, the question that we have to always work through is how much is too much and what's the right amount? Having is not condemned, though. Don't miss that, Okay. Because some people say, you know, when they hear a passage, they go, you know, I'm not going to treasure up anything on earth, and I'm selling it all, and I'm, I'm out of here, wherever. I don't know what they're planning on doing, but, you know, that's not the answer. What is condemned here is not having, but it is this selfish accumulation of stuff. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus puts it this way. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What he's, what he's getting at here is he's saying, don't let anything distract you from what's real. Are you tracking with me on that? Give me one of those if you are. Don't let anything distract you. Because you know how it works, right? I love, you, you, who's bought, you ever bought a new car? You don't have to raise your hand, right? A lot of you have probably bought a new car before, okay? You go to the place, man, and it's like all of a sudden you're like, you're on Edmunds, a true car, and you're figuring out what's best. And then the guy's showing you the nice stuff, and you can afford the crummy stuff. And, you know, you're like, man, I love that DVD GPS that talks to me and, and my leather seats and my, you know, whatever it is. I want a sunroof, moonroof, T-top. I want the thing to come up and down and in and out. I don't care. I want it all, man. This is beautiful. Look at what he's showing me, and then I'm looking over at the Yugo I can afford, Right. And you get kind of consumed when you're buying a car and stuff like that, sometimes if you're not careful. And part of that's being a good steward, you know, making sure that you do the right thing, get the right stuff. But the reality is stuff has this magnetism, right, that attracts us because it's tangible. And treasures in heaven are hard for us to be attracted to naturally because they are intangible in our eyes often. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's easy to say, that's pretty, you know, squirrel, you know, that's pretty, I love that. And it's hard to, to, to say, you know, I am investing in eternity here. And because of that, it is easy for us to be trapped into materialism and to, to, to be consumed by that and waste our time on things that don't last. This is what I love about this check group going out again. Man, if you have not gone on one of these trips, folks, Next year, you do this every year, right, Huey? Next year, go. In between, go somewhere, do something. It's such an eye-opener on materialism, for one thing, usually, but just to, to pour your life into things that are eternal and to expend yourself in that way to, 
to, to, you know, we look at it and say, well, you know, we're getting rid of our vacations or our money or different things like that. That's no sacrifice for what's gained, folks. Believe me. Those things are so valuable. And it's exciting to see year after year a group going out like that. Again, this isn't about money, folks. Your treasure may be money, but it might be your home. It might be your Blu-ray collection. It might be your position in the community. It might be a job title. It might be other people's applause. It might be a memory. And the bottom line is this. If anything in this world is everything to you, then you have an earthly treasure. If anything in this world is everything to you, then you're, you're holding on to an earthly treasure. And you see, all those treasures get destroyed. It's true. You, you can't take it with you. The cliche is right. It's temporal and not eternal. There was an old miser. The story is told of an old miser who called his doctor, his lawyer, and it was his minister to his deathbed. He was dying. And he's in his deathbed weak and all this kind of stuff. And he says, looks up at the three men. He says, you know, they, they say that you can't take it with you. But I'm going to try to prove them wrong. And he hands each one of them an envelope with $30,000 cash in it. He says, when, when they're lowering my body into the grave, I want you at the very last second, throw these envelopes full of cash into the grave. Because I'm going to prove them wrong. Just in case I can take it with me. At his funeral, as I stood by his graveside, and the casket was lowered, each man threw his envelope, just as requested. On the way home, the minister is feeling overcome with guilt, knowing that he didn't do things just right. He says, you know what? The church needed $10,000. I'll be honest with you guys. I, I took $10,000 out, and I only threw 20000 in. The doctor said, well, now that, now that you're kind of confessing this, them." You know, I took 20000 out because I wanted a new clinic. It's going to help people, right? I wanted a new clinic. So I threw 10000 in the envelope. The lawyer looked at him and just shook his head and said, you sorry guys, man. I want you to know I threw the whole thing in. I wrote a personal check and threw it right in there. What's the point? The point is, as you look at this stuff, even the old miser scheme didn't survive the materialism of his friends, Right? It all gets destroyed. Your bank account, hey, what the government doesn't get, your kids are going to fight over, your job. Do you think anybody's going to remember you doing your job 200 years from now? You, like, boy, wasn't he a legendary accountant? Right? What a fantastic mechanic that man was. I mean, if, do we have high school age and below in here at all? Is there anybody? If you're, if you're high school age or younger, I want you to stand up for a second. I'm not going to embarrass you too much more than having you stand up. All right? All right? I see one hiding over there. It's okay if you need to hide. I understand. All right. Let me, I'll just ask you. What's your name? I told you I wasn't going to embarrass you, right? How's it going so far? I'm embarrassing you, aren't I? What, what was your name again? All right. I'm David. Good to meet you. Um, do you know who Mary Pickford is? No. Even here in L.A., the entertainment capital of the world? Okay, well, 75, 80 years ago, she was like the biggest star on the face of the earth. Everybody was just gaga over her, right? All right, let me move forward a little bit then. Jerry Lewis? Some of you are starting to feel old. Lucille Ball? Oh, yeah. Sit, sit down, you're good. But here's the point, right? These people were everything back in the day, right? Everybody's like, oh, Mary Pickford, if I could just meet Mary and all these kind of people. But now, just in a few generations' time, that's gone, right? Even fame is fleeting. You go to a state auction sometime if you want perspective. 
I never will forget one time we went to an estate auction. <laughs> My wife and I with a couple of friends in Kansas. We were pretty new to our church in Kansas, and we went to this auction. I'm standing with the guy. His name was Steen, and, and she's with the, the wife, and her name was Brenda. And, and so I'm sitting there, and, you know, I'm kind of like, wow, this is kind of boring. And, but anyway, it was, you know, people are auctioning stuff off. And at one point, there's this box of stuff that they're, they're doing the live auction thing. And it's this box of, like, magazines and old coffee mug, mugs from a trip or something like that, and they're bidding on it. And, you know, a quarter, I got a quarter over here, 50 cents, 50 cents over here, 75, 75, do you have 75, do you have a dollar, dollar? And they're going through this thing, and I'm, I lean over to Steen, I say, who in the world is wasting their money on that garbage? Sold for $1.25, and my wife moves forward to get it. You, that's the deal. You go to that, all those things in that box to that person. They bought that coffee mug on their very special trip to Vermont. You know what I mean? They had to have it. Paid ten ninety five in a gift shop for it. All these things were things that were precious to them. And at the end of their life, when they're taken away, put in a home, under the ground, whatever the issue is, people are going, I'll give you a quarter for the whole box of it. Why invest everything in nothing? Job said in Job 1.21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. It's like the old Spanish proverb, there are no pockets in death shrouds. So what Jesus is getting here is he's trying to change our perspective because the shiny stuff is attracting us. And he's saying, just know that stuff won't last. And instead of that, verse 20, but, and that word when you see it in scripture, man, it's a hinge that the door's turning on, right? But instead of that, he says... Verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, Jesus is not earning, talking about earning some sort of position in heaven, salvation, or anything like that. He's talking about taking our lives, which are stewardship, right, and investing our lives in the things that will last for eternity. It's a beautiful thing if you can get your arms around this. He says that a life lived for God who's a person who's living for his priorities will be rewarded in heaven. You will have the fullness of life here and then a reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3 describes the scene. It says no one can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, that's the basis of everything, right? That's how you're saved. That's where your salvation starts and everything like that. He says, but with your life as one who has been redeemed for the purposes of God, as one who is an ambassador of Christ, you're to be carrying out a task, right? And so the evaluation comes on how did you carry out the task? Verse 12, now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. Now, as what the reward is, Scripture doesn't say, and that's probably best, don't you think? But needless to say, treasure in heaven will be substantial and beyond our wildest dreams. And get this, it will be eternal, it won't rot, it won't rust, and it can't be ripped off. The question, really, that we should be asking ourselves about our present life and the things we are investing our time money and energy in is how important are these things going to be a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, a million years from now, a a trillion years from now? How important will that all-consuming wallpaper decision be? 
How, how important will this promotion that we're so consumed with be? How important will our fame be? And as we realize that those things have no lasting significance in, reali in reality, then our question should be, in light of that, how should I be living? 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19 says this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. And by the way, all you in this room are rich. You understand that by the world's definition. If you've got a car, you're rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but, there's that little word again, but on God. Fix your hope on God. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, Instruct them with their lives to do this, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that, which is, check this out, life indeed, real life. Now look at verse 21, where Jesus sums up this thought. He says this, it's profound. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We'll get a lot more from this verse if we understand what the word heart there really means. We tend to think of it merely as affections, like a Hallmark card or something like that. But biblically, when you talk about the heart, it's really talking about the entire person. You know? And this verse, folks, is a really gracious mirror in which we can see our heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is natural and it's right for us to pay attention to our jobs, to our education, to our home, to, to our future, to even saving for the days that will come. And cases can be made biblically for every one of those things. But what Christ is warning us against here, and don't miss it, He's warning us against a pre, a, an unhealthy preoccupation with them. Realizing where our treasure is and there our heart is going to be also, we should be asking ourselves things like, what occupies my thoughts when I have nothing else to think about? Where do I go? What, what occupies my daydreams? Is it my investment, my position, uh, my leisure? That'll tell me something about where my treasure is. Also closely related, what do we fret about the most? What, what makes us stay up at night and worry and, and you know, just like what's going to happen next kind of feeling? Is it our home? Is it perhaps our clothing? That tells you something about where your treasure is and where your heart is. Apart from our loved ones, whom or what do we fret about losing the most? That tells you something about where your heart is. What are the standards that you measure others by when you look at them and, and say, oh, he's this or that? I mean, because the standard we measure other people by are, are the standards by which we treasure. You understand that, right? By their clothes, by their education, by their homes, by their athletic prowess, by their success. That tells us something about where our treasure is. Last, what is it that we know we cannot be happy without? That tells us what our treasure is. 
So as you think through those questions, as you and I come to the mirror of God's word, one of the things that we must be doing is saying, okay, where my treasure is there, my heart will be also. I want to understand where my treasure is realistically. I don't want to like talk myself into it or, or justify or rationalize my position, but I really, really want to know, God, am I treasuring anything over and above you? Where is my heart? Is it on earthly treasure? Hey, if your heart's on earthly treasure, you just need to understand what Jesus says is it will be attacked and ultimately destroyed. These verses are a gracious mirror given to us by our Lord. The ancient Assyrians had a superstition that if a demon saw himself in the mirror, he would, he would fly away. And the idea was the demon would see his own ugliness and it would cause him to flee in terror. As we come face to face with the mirror of God's word, we see ourselves, however ugly at times, right? But the question is, are we going to flee and just stay in that position? Or are we going to do something about it? Are we going to allow God to work in our lives and change us? As Christians, folks, our lives must be radically different. You understand this, I hope, right? Our lives are not called to be indistinguishable from this world around us. We are called, and the Sermon on the Mount is all about that, to be radically different. God calls us not to prioritize our lives by the world's value systems, but by his value system. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest will be added to you. He says a little bit later. You see, the reality is this. We are strangers and aliens here, right? We're not of this world, according to God's word. We're on our way, get this, to a city whose architect and builder is God. How much cooler is that than any city we can find? And as such, as an alien, as a stranger, as one who's moving on to the place that God has prepared for us, how do we organize our time, our money, our energies to most bring him the glory and be used by God to impact the generation we live in? The worldly man looks at his life and his possessions and he thinks he owns them. And the Christian looks at him and should be saying, I'm not the owner of this stuff. I have, I have them on lease. They don't belong to me. I'm just a custodian. I, I, I can't take them with me. What I can do, though, is I can use this time, energy, money, whatever, for God's glory. So I need to be careful about my attitude towards what I've been given, and I must do what the true owner desires me to do with it. And as you do that, what happens is you're able to stay focused and single-minded, and what ends up happening is you avoid settling for less. And less being what the world has to offer, which cannot satisfy and does not last. Robert Robinson was born in England more than 200 years ago. When he was a boy, his father died and his widowed mother sent him off to London to receive training as a barber. While he was in London, Robert encountered a powerful man of God by the name of George Whitfield. He heard the gospel, he felt a call to ministry, and he began to study for a lifetime of serving Christ. At 25, Robinson was called to be the pastor of a church in Cambridge, where he became very, very successful. But with that success, an interesting thing began to happen. With that popularity, 
it, it took a toll on him, and he began to lose his focus. He, he got caught up in all kinds of sin, and he soon really just faded from the scene. I mean, here he was a, a bright light that faded out quick. Some years later, many years later, Robinson was making a trip by stagecoach, and he was sitting next to this woman who was reading a book, and she was really getting into this book, and it was a book of hymns, and it's one particular hymn that she found printed. She was so excited with it, and so it meant so much to her that she was overcome with her excitement. She, she pointed out to Robinson, who was sitting next to her, who was a total stranger to her, and she pointed to the hymn that she had been reading and said, what do you think of this? Isn't this great? Robinson looks down and sees the first few lines, and he sees the words, Come thou fount of every blessing. To my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. He couldn't read any further. He turned his head away and began to blink away the tear, tears and tried to change the subject. But the lady, she was so excited, she just wouldn't be derailed. Pressing her point, she told him of the benefit that the, the words had meant to her that she'd got from that hymn as she pondered the things of God and she glowed with, it, trying to, with the encouragement that these words had really been to her heart. Finally, Robinson was overcome with immersion and he burst into tears. He said, Madame, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to know that feeling again. Robinson had lost his focus. He'd settled for less. And it's so ironic that at the end of that hymn, he seemed to predict his own downward course, didn't he? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robert Robinson died shortly after that encounter at the young age of 55, the victim of a lesser loyalty. Folks, this is where the rubber hits the road. You and I who have been saved by the grace of God, we were saved not through any work of our own. Amen? We don't keep it by working it. We didn't get it by working it. We were saved by grace and we continue to live by grace. Amen? Right? But do not miss this. God's grace is not an impotent grace. It is a powerful grace. It is a grace that transforms. You understand this, right? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. See, God's grace is a transformative grace that takes us, and while we're not made into perfection here on earth, we are viewed as perfection through God's eyes, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And during the, the rest of our lives, from the day that that marvelous grace is showered upon us, we live being progressively sanctified, right? Being conformed daily into the image of his Son, glory to glory to glory, right? Second uh, Corinthians 3.18. It is a work that is mighty, not impotent. It is the powerful work of a God who has saved you. He has given you salvation. He has given you new life. He has given you instructions in his word. He has given you the way to understand his word through the spirit that indwells you, right? And he has called you to live a certain way. And don't miss this, guys. 
He has called us as believers to live a radically different life with a focus that is single-mindedly towards Christ. If I work in my job as a division manager for a door and window company, I better be using that for the kingdom of God, right? Or a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. If I'm a father, right? It's Father's Day. I want to be using that position and those gifts that God has given me to have an impact for the kingdom of God. If I'm a member of a church, which I should be if I'm a believer, right? I should be using my gifts to build up the body and have an impact for the kingdom of God. If God's given me a house or an apartment or a tent in a neighborhood, I ought to be using those relationships, right? To bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he might, by his grace and for his glory, see others saved. Can you dig it? I knew that you could. That's the deal. You and I are meant for something that is eternal, not just stuff that is looks good and shiny and fun to watch or this, that, and the other, but it's stuff that fades away and rots and is destroyed. We are called to be used by Almighty God for His eternal purposes, for His glory, and can you think of anything better than that? Hmm? Anybody? Raise your hand. Of course not. How should we then live? We should live with a single-minded focus to use our lives for whatever breath he gives us, whether it be 15 minutes or 150 years, right? For his glory. So how about it? As you look at your own life, as I look at mine, and I tell you, when I preach this sermon, you need to know this, okay? It hits me a hundred times more than it hits you as I work through it over and over and over again. There are so many things in my life that I could focus better on. And what this word does to me is I look in the mirror and say, David, change that by the grace of God. See that altered by the power of God. And if any of us sitting here who are in Christ come to the word and say, you know, I see there are things that I need to change, but you know what? I'm not going to bother with it. Beware. Beware. God has, you know, it's the old, who was it, Campus Crusade, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, I don't really like that little saying, I'll be honest with you, because what wonderful means to most people you're saying isn't what wonderful means in God's economy, which could mean persecution, different things like that. But can I just tell you really clearly, he has a wonderful plan for your life. It's so wonderful that even if you're in prison under Nero like Paul and your last friend has left you, you have a God who does not change and he'll never leave you or forsake and you can have joy peace and contentment in the hardest of situations and when it's great how beautiful to reflect upon the blessings that God has given and to give glory to him like that woman on the train beside Robert Robbins that's our calling one treasure, Christ, his purposes for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment in the word together. We thank you for your truth. Lord, your truth is, uh, it is a sword that penetrates our deepest hearts, motives. It, it, it splays us open and, and shows the compartments of our life that we have ignored, hidden away, 
are held for our own. And so, Father, we come to you and we repent. And we ask for your grace to, to work its mightiness in our life again. So that we might use whatever years, whatever days you give us for your glory and for your purposes. Lord, help our treasure to be laid up in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. In Christ's name, amen.